0: Well, it is great to be worshiping with you, Horizon family. Thanks for joining us today as we just continue to celebrate who Jesus is. Uh, I told you this series has an ongoing theme of Jesus is bigger and better and more breathtaking than anything you've seen in the Old Testament, anything you could find in the world. And that certainly continues here in chapter 4. And I tell you, this message is something I, I want for you and I want for me more than Probably any chapter we're going to look at. There's an invitation here in chapter 4. Therefore, since he's better than Moses, a promise remains of entering into his rest. We're going to study Sabbath today. Like, oh man, why study Sabbath? Why? <laughs> because we need it. It's like the, we live in a culture that there was nothing of Sabbath and rest. But I want to promise you, this is not a beat you up for working hard and providing for your family message. This is not going to be a guilt-ridden, condemnation-filled message. It's not going to be just about how we need to take more vacations and not be on our phones all the time, all of which we know is true. This is going to be much deeper than that. Why is it hard for us to rest? How do we really get access to what's driving our hearts, discerning our hearts, to how we can enter into a place that doesn't just happen every seven days, but something that happens every minute of the day, the kind of rest he invites us into? Now, to do that, it's going to take us a while to figure this chapter out. It is a bear of a chapter. It's going to be a puzzle. We're going to have to kind of put the pieces together and what's this and what's not this. We're going to look at a puzzle. But stay with me. It's going to be worth it. There's going to be two very practical principles at the back end that help us. And I'm going to show you that rest is going to be more than just every seventh day not working. Far more than that. It's far more than the rest of getting to heaven one day. He's going to use the word rest eight times in 13 verses to invite us into something so practical that it applies to everyday living in our life. Now, to do that, We've been teaching not only Hebrews, but we've been teaching us how to study the Bible in our series. So if you have your bookmark with you, we're going to be looking at that. Um, If you're online, watching online, you can also check as well by uh, downloading that off the app or the website. Today we're looking specifically at number one, how to check the context of a verse. In order to understand this puzzle, we're going to have to really look at the context. Now what does that mean? Is there evidence in the surrounding sentences, paragraphs, or pages to confirm that how we interpret this text comes out of the text rather than me reading something into the text. And so we're going to really dive into what does the text say, what does it not say, to figure out what this Sabbath rest really is. You ready? All right, here we go. We're diving into this puzzle. It is quite a puzzle here in chapter 4. We'll read through the whole thing and let you kind of feel the the puzzlingness of it before we uh, figure it out. Therefore... Since a promise remains of entering his rest. So every time it says rest, I put it in yellow. Let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So in green are ways we miss the rest. So we come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Talking about those wandering the desert from last chapter. But the word which they heard did not profit them. So they didn't get access to the rest, didn't profit them. They fell short of it because they didn't mix it with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed, oh, there's how you get access to it, enter rest. So if you don't profit and if you come short of it, it's a lack of belief because believing enters rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, Well, who? Who doesn't enter the rest? Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. What does that have to do with anything? Verse 4. For he has spoken in a certain place, in the seventh day in this way, God rested. And on the seventh day from all his works. Okay, maybe we're talking about the Sabbath every seven days again. But again, in this place, he also said, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6. Since, therefore, it, there's the rest, it remains, that some may enter it. Some get this, some don't. And those to whom it, there's the rest again, was first preached, did not enter. Okay, why didn't they enter? Because of disobedience. Was it belief or is it disobedience? Well, again, he designates a certain day, saying through David, Today, after such a long time, as it's been said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So hardening your heart has to do with falling short of it, has to do with disbelief, has to do with disobedience. Now, if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day of future rest to come. There remains, therefore, a rest. It remains still in the future for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent, we've got to be diligent in order to enter the rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of the Lord is a living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom he must give account. Hopefully you uh, entered the rest, so good luck. Wow, is that complicated, wasn't it? That's a puzzle. We're going to try and figure out what in the world is he trying to say, and it's going to take us a while to untangle it, but it's going to be worth it. Let's start with some misconceptions as we jump into the chapter. What are some things it's not saying? Well, misconception number one, coming short of it doesn't mean not obeying well enough to get to heaven. All right, we know that. And, and that's clear in the text because he so emphasizes belief. Lest any of you seem to have come short of it, whatever comes short of it means, whatever did not profit them means, whatever hardening their heart means, there's a reoccurring theme I put in blue here of what this is really about. When you believe, it's not works, when you believe, you enter rest. What does it mean to believe? You somehow understand that the works are finished. Hmm. He reiterates that back in verse 10. When you enter the rest, you yourself cease from your works just like God did from his. So coming short of it is about believing something related to works being ceased because God did them, not you. All right. Next misconception. God's rest, whatever it means here in the passage, it doesn't mean getting to heaven, but it also means far more than just not working every seven days. Because he builds on that head related to Joshua, head related to something Joshua had in the future. Let me show you that from the text. He uses three different examples, and when scholars read this chapter, they're struck by the word rest is used in three separate examples. He gives a Genesis example of rest. He gives a quote from David in Psalms example of rest. And he gives Joshua entering the land version of rest. Hmm. What do these three things have in common? So here are the passages he quoted. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in which God said he rested on the seventh day from all his works. Alright, so we're not talking about getting to heaven here. We're talking about a resting every seventh day. But then he quotes from David's psalm, where David said today, after such a long time, it has been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you go back and read that psalm, you're going to see it's all about worshiping God every day for who he is and for what he's done. And today, operating from a place of worship. And he calls that rest. Hmm. Then he gives an example from Joshua, entering into the promised land. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest. So, creation gave us a little hint of it. Joshua getting into the land gave us a hint of it. Worshiping every day gives us a hint of it. But still, the fulfillment of that is something deeper but related to them. Chad, is this helping? We'll get there. We'll get there. Now, it also doesn't mean getting to heaven. Whatever this means. Why do I say that? Well, if we jump back to chapter three, this is related to his previous thoughts. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? That's who we're talking about. Therefore, a promise remains for the people coming out of Egypt and to us. It has to do with the gospel. The gospel's preached to them, and the gospel's preached to us. But the word which they heard didn't profit them. For we who have believed enter the rest. So it's not about every seventh day not working get you in the rest. It's something about believing get you in the rest. And they shall not enter the rest, hmm, because they didn't realize their works were finished. They didn't cease from their work as God did from his. Now, in the Old Testament, if you follow the Bible, uh, when people get to the promised land and they choose not to believe in God and they wander for 40 days, there's one thing they did pretty well. They rested every seven days. In fact, God put the structure in place that they had to. If you tried to collect too much manna on day six, it rotted on day seven. So they were really good at obeying the seventh-day resting law. And yet, they didn't enter or work from a place of rest. So whatever this is, it's got to be deeper than just not working every seventh day. And it's got to be deeper than just getting to heaven. Because it's something that today you can enter into. Something today you can experience hmm, is this deeper rest. Here's the question. Are you working even when you're resting? Oh, you say you're off for a day, you say you're on vacation, but really you're striving, you're working, you're working for people's approval, you're working to be productive, you can't imagine not being productive, not being busy. That you're always working even when you're resting. Then there's other people that, man, they are so productive But man, they can also be present. They can work even when they're resting. They operate, they live from a place of rest. They don't seem to need to garner everybody's approval for decisions they make. They seem to be coming from a place of giving to others, from a place of contentment and peace and how they operate in their life. See, he who enters the rest has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. Are you working even when you're supposedly resting? Or are you resting even when you're working? Your work, your relationships come from a place of contentment and rest in God. Let me give you an example. This is Moody Memorial Church. Never seen it before. It's an old church built in the 1800s. It's a gigantic church right in downtown Chicago. And I work there. I did an internship there uh, my junior, senior year of college. And I'll never forget working at this massive church that D.L. Moody started and had this massive name and massive reach, well-known all through Chicago, and I was the children's director and junior high director there. I was only going to do an internship for nine months, and then they tried to hire me full-time, but um, I ended up moving to Atlanta. But I'll never forget my mentor, Mike Milko. He was the family pastor. He pulled me aside and every week we we did some mentoring. And he said, Chad, you're only going to be here for nine months. You're not going to accomplish a lot. That was offensive to me, right? Wait till you see what I can accomplish in nine months. We're going to get some incredible things done. He said, no, really. You're going to do some great things. But in general, you're not going to accomplish a lot in nine months. But what I do want to help you understand is who you are in Christ and how to work from that place. And he said this line that has stuck with me for 27 years. He said, I want you to operate and work from a place where you have nothing to lose and nothing to prove. Work hard be ambitious. But you're doing it from a place that you have nothing to lose. So if you have to take blame for things you made mistakes on, you're able to own those mistakes Because those mistakes don't say who you are. Who you are is something far deeper. You're able to take risks when appropriate because you're not scared of failure. You've got nothing to lose. But you also have nothing to prove. You're not using this job to find your identity. You're not using the next step or the success or the progress you're making to somehow define who you are. If I can help you get to the place that you are working from a spot with nothing to prove and nothing to lose, you'll be successful no matter where you go. And he was speaking about entering into a rest. That what motivates us. So I want to do a good job. I work really hard on these messages. I, I practice and I practice and I research and I research and I research. But I'm not defined by whether or not you like it. Now, there were times in my career every Sunday night it was like the Sunday night funk. Oh, it's over. Seven more days till we get another hit. Or somebody complained about the message. I was defined by how well I did. Other times, it's you've got nothing to prove. I've got to prove. You're only, in journalism class, when I took journalism, you're only as good as your next story. How do we get from a place of rest? We have nothing to lose and nothing to prove. That's what he's getting at here. And I want to try and show you as we continue to unpack this. So, what do those three examples of rest have in common? Right? He gives three examples. Creation, David, and then Joshua they all have one thing in common, which is people resting in completion. When God made six days and rested, he was satisfied. It is good. It is good. It is good. He could not be enslaved to having to be productive one more day because he could stop and be satisfied in the completion of the work. Same thing's true of David. It's the promise of completion. You can worship God for who he is and what he's done. Your heart can be so filled with thankfulness that the God of the universe loves you and knows you and has chose you and is living life with you. Wow, I am complete. Whether my kids obey tomorrow or don't. Whether my marriage is going well tomorrow or isn't. Whether I make the best numbers or the worst numbers. I'm hoping for the best. But I'm complete because the God of the universe lives in me. And then Joshua, the rest is the completion of promises. Abraham got promised a land and it took a long time and 400 years of bondage. When they came to the land and entered the land, it was the completion of God's promises. What God had done, not what they had done. So this theme is running through all of these examples and pointing to the ultimate completion that comes in Christ. So let's reread the passage with some of those thoughts in mind. Since "...a promise remains of entering his rest, trusting in God's completed work in me." Let's fear, lest any of you come short of it. You lack confidence in that, and you start building your identity on striving in things. "...for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as them, for the word which they heard did not profit them." Why didn't it profit them? Because they didn't make, it didn't make them confident of God's completed work. So they gave in to fears. So they gave into to worries. They didn't mix it with faith or confidence in God. In those who heard it. For we who have believed or have confidence in God when what he has done, we do enter the rest. We live from a place of his completed work. For he has said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. See, those who don't have confidence in my work don't live from a place of rest. Just like those examples I gave. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the earth. So back to the question Do I work to find rest? Meaning I am striving, I am earning, I am obeying. In order to hopefully find rest, find my sense of identity, find my sense of acceptance. If I try hard, if I work hard, God will love me better. If I try hard, work hard, people will love me better. If I try hard and strive and do things perfectly because I'm a perfectionist, then maybe people will acknowledge me the way I need to be acknowledged. You're working to find rest, identity, and acceptance. Or do you work because you found rest? Oh, I still want to obey. And I still want to please my Heavenly Father. And I want to serve others. But I'm doing it from a place of rest. I am accepted in Christ. I've ceased from doing my work, striving to find my identity. I've rooted myself in the rest that it was His works that defined me. He defines my identity. And so I work because I've found rest. I don't work or strive in order to find rest, see the difference? Let me give you some examples. These are different things we all struggle with gossip, living for approval, being a perfectionist, beating yourself up, being a workaholic. Right? These are things that, like every day, we struggle with, struggling with giving, pressure to perform, codependency, worry, and fear. Every one of these things is a lack of confidence in the gospel. A lack of resting in who you are in Christ. Gossip. You ever ask yourself, like, why do you gossip? Well, so, one, because it's kind of fun. But two, it's because we want to know what goes on in other people's lives. And by making, funny how dysfunctional other people are, maybe we don't feel quite as dysfunctional ourselves, right? It's a lack of, because I'm not resting in who I am, and God has forgiven me of all my dysfunction, I want to kind of get invested in other people's dysfunction to make myself feel better because I'm not resting. Why do I live for other people's approval? Because I am not resting in being approved by my heavenly father. And so I need other people's approval to define me, to let me know if I'm happy or if I'm okay. Why am I perfectionist? Because I don't believe the gospel, which tells me that I can't be perfect no matter how hard I try. And so I think if I could just get this project and just do this exactly right, and just get all the details, manage exactly what I need to do, it, then maybe, then maybe I will feel good about myself. Then maybe I'll be acknowledged what I need to. Instead, say I couldn't be perfect, I've driven myself crazy, and everybody who lives with me crazy for 20 years trying to be a perfectionist. Instead, I need to say, I'm perfect in Christ, and I'm going to do my best out of that perfection. I'm working, but not to strive to find something, but out of a rest I found. I don't need to beat myself up over what I've done, because Jesus was beaten enough for me. And I rest in that he was beaten for me. And I don't need to beat myself up. I don't need to shame myself or guilt myself. I need to believe in the rest of Jesus' death. The reason I'm a workaholic, the reason I can't rest, is because I'm enslaved to something. Status, performance, appearance, money. That's keeping me from being able to, without being legalistic, take some time off. Be able to take a vacation that really unplugs if I struggle with giving, it's because I don't really believe that I have treasures in heaven. And I'm resting in my eternal treasures. Instead, I think all my real treasures, all my real security of whatever it is I can accumulate or what number I can hit. The pressure to perform or strive, which is what the Hebrews had. If I could just obey enough laws or do enough religion or, or do enough things, God would be happy with me. You're not resting in the fact that he's happy in you in Christ. because of what Christ did. Codependency, the the belief that I need to rescue other people because I don't believe God is God and only He can rescue people. So I set myself up as somebody else's God. I'm not resting in the fact that God's in control of the universe and He cares about me and He cares about the birds of the air as well as me. And so I don't need to worry about tomorrow and give in to fear because I'm living from a place of rest. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that so much better than just trying to take a day off every seven days? Isn't that so much better than just getting to heaven? So two principles I told you I'd give you that roll out of living from rest. Number one, it's not too late as a Christian to put your confidence in God and to live from the rest of God. Therefore, a promise remains, he's talking to Christians, of entering his rest. You're not living from a place of rest. Lest us fear, lest any of you seem to come short of it. You're not living this out. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. You got the gospel, but it's not the power of it. It's not coming to your life. It didn't profit them because they didn't mix it with confidence in God and who he is. You need belief. See, we who have believed, yeah, God did the work for me. I can cease from my works, cease from my striving. We enter that rest. I swore my wrath. When you don't believe that, you don't enter the rest. They shall never enter my rest. Those who what? Don't believe. It's not too late to put your confidence in God. And to look underneath all the disobedience, all the bad it behaviors, all the habits that you can't break. You've been just kind of working harder to break those habits. It's never going to work to look under those habits and figure out what's the lack of rest in your heart that's driving that. And then disbelief is always a sign of a lack of confidence in God. His way, His ability, His work, or His power. I don't believe His way is best. I don't believe He really cares about me. I don't believe He's really trustworthy. In fact, I saw an interview with Jordan Peterson. You may have heard his name before. He's a top psychologist in Canada, and he was the number one Western uh, advocate for free speech for like two years. He just was on every TV show all over the world. And then suddenly he went through a horrible time of pain, like debilitating pain. Every day, wake up, can't get out of pain, pain, 24-7. He'd written this book called The Twelve Rules for Life. And one of the rules as a clinical psychologist he showed is that when you can live from a place of thankfulness, your life is much more successful than living from a place of resentment. And having now been in pain for an entire year, they asked him, what's the hardest rule for you to follow? And he said, it's got to be being thankful while I'm in so much pain. He said, but I keep believing what I know is true, as hard as it is, when I believe being thankful produces a better life than being resentful, I can daily choose to do it. It struck me. He wasn't saying I'm working on being thankful. He said, I got to believe that this is true. Same thing's true for you. You've got to believe what God says is true. You've got to believe that his way works. You've got to believe that you will reap what you sow in due time. When you believe the gospel, then it begins to flow through you. You might say, well, I do believe it. How deeply do you believe it? Enough that it's affecting your bad habits like we just talked about? You don't need to work harder. You need to believe deeper. And as David's saying, it's not too late today. Today's the day to start. Today's a day to reach in and say, God, today's my defining point, my lie in the sand. Today I'm going to start living from a place of rest. That's principle one. Live from it and start today. Principle two. This is going to get a little convicting, right? So principle two, free people rest in the confidence that they are sons, not slaves. You know why slaves never rest? Because the work is never done. 400 years of bondage, do you think they ever had a day of rest? No. There's still more bricks to build. So here's the question Are you living your life in the freest country, in the freest time in history, still enslaved to something? Enslaved, you need to be busy, you need to be productive your need for other people's approval. The reason you can't rest or live from rest is because you're still enslaved. Being able to take a day off or go a few hours without checking your phone is a sign that you're not enslaved to something. That you can rest in the completion that God's in control of my career and I work hard. But ultimately, if I can't take a couple days off because my my kids are sick or because whatever, I, I might have a problem. I'm enslaved to something. And this theme's going to come up over and over, that you need to live from a place that you are a son, not a slave. And that's why God told the people coming out of Egypt, I want you to take days of rest because you're no longer enslaved. And enslaved people never rest. Free people can rest. They're not legalistic about it. As Jesus had to show up and say, guys, you took this Sabbath thing too far. If your horse falls in a ditch or your goat falls in a ditch, it's okay to save them. It's okay to rescue them. Don't be legalistic about this on this side, but on this side, you never rest. You're enslaved. You need to figure out why. You believe something besides the gospel is giving you your sense of identity. I want you to have the joy of completion I had the joy that Joshua gives a hint of when, when we got into the land. I want you to know what it is to worship every day with the joy that the God of, of heaven loves you and knows you by name from David, and that all point to a future completion of God's work in Christ. I don't need to strive to earn God's approval because He stood on that cross, and His final words were, "What? It is finished." And in that triumphal declaration, he declared that it is finished. You're striving. You need to earn approval with God. You're willing to earn something more than God just loving you because what Christ did for you. What you do and obey doesn't make you any more lovable to God. And the days you crash and burn because you disobeyed don't make you any less lovable to God. It saves you from self righteousness and pride here, and it saves you from guilt and shame here. That's the gospel. Living from a place of being a son and not a slave. Which is then why he gets to this last part of the verse. He says, when you realize you're a people of God, you cease from your works because you entered the rest. So he says, be diligent. Be diligent to discern what's motivating you. Like, why does he tap on this whole thing about the Bible at the end? The two-edged sword that we've heard so many times. Here's why. Be diligent... The Bible can help you to discern the thoughts and intents of your heart. Why can't I rest? Why can't I enter fully? Why do I need to earn God's approval? Why do I find myself giving into fear? See, the the word of God is a a sword, living and powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to pierce into your soul and go deep into your spirit, the joints and the marrow kind of stuff, to help you discern your thinking and the intents of your heart as to why you can't rest. Which is why he says, and that's why there is no creature hidden from his sight. He knows your intent. The gospel will expose your intent, your idols, the things you believe that are not God. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him who must give an account. This word open is so fascinating. It's a word in Greek treklyzo, which is where we get the idea of a trachea or your neck. This is the same word would be used of a sheep when you would extend his neck out before you'd cut it in the Levitical uh, sacrifices. He says, when you come to the end of time, God's going to stretch your neck out. And he's going to expose, you going to be very vulnerable, all the ways in which the intents of your heart are motivating you fear and worry and those things need to be killed those old idols those old gods those old things you're striving or holding on to that aren't jesus and the gospel stretches out and shows you exactly what it was that's been motivating you so you can crucify those things so you can let those things die on the cross jesus crucified your idols on the cross so you could be free The gospel will tell you exactly what's really going on, what really motivated you. Was it fear? Was it service? Or was it really working from a place of rest? You're all going to be stretched out and fully exposed. What's really going on, on the inside? So here's my question for you. If we stretched out your heart and the thoughts of your mind right now, are you living from a place of being a son? And daughter of God or you're living from a place of being enslaved are you enslaved to worry fear insecurity perfectionism self-justification you can't take anybody's feedback it's like well you understand why I did that control controlling only things God can control striving workaholism Or just being enslaved to self? Or do you operate and live from a place of rest? That you are a child of God. And so every day, even though things aren't exactly how you'd like them to be, you're not defined by your circumstances. You're thankful and content and and work from a place of, of joy, of assurance. You're secure in who you are because of how God sees you. You're teachable. You're open to things you've done wrong because God probably died for one of those that I did today. Are you full of grace? You can give yourself grace because God gave you grace. You don't need to control things. You can surrender things. You don't need to strive. You can just accept that some things don't go the way you want or hope. So always workaholism? You can be ambitious, but it comes from a place of contentment. You're not enslaved to self. You can be generous with your calendar, with your money, with your body in marriage. Are you living from a place where you're enslaved? Are you working from a place of rest, knowing you're a child of God? And the reason we do what we do as a church is because we believe the two-service design that we have creates environments for people to come and find God, sometimes for the first time in our exploring service, sometimes... Like we've done today, really deepening our faith, going through a very challenging part of the Bible and equipping us to say, what does it look like? What does it look like for us to really be equipped to live this life we've been called to? And I'd like you to hear the story of, um, of my friend Matt. And Matt, we interviewed a, uh, about a month ago, and he shared, and you'll notice, if you listen real carefully, he doesn't say, I became a Christian for the first time. As a Christian, he had become enslaved to some things. And he had to reconnect with what it meant to be a child of God, a son of God, to find freedom, to live from a place of rest. Let's watch.
1: When I got married, I thought life was going to be all sunshine, rainbows, and roses. Um, boy, was I wrong! I thought I was living a wonderful, wonderful life, and I was being a wonderful husband. I was not. One day, I was very surprised when I was handed divorce papers. Uh, they were actually disillusioned papers. Being handed those papers was the biggest eye-opening experience I've ever, uh, I, I've ever had the joy of being a part of. And I, <laughs> I realized very quickly that there were two two roads: I could accept the end of my marriage, or I could fight. And this was not even an option. I decided immediately that I was going to fight, and I was going to save my marriage. I was making terrible choices, terrible choices. They were selfish choices. I thought of Matt before I thought of anyone else. Most importantly, before I thought of my wife, once I focused my life and put Christ at the center, everything was better. I was a better husband. I was a better friend. I was a better employee. I was a better son. I was a better everything. And I can I can relate that all back to a renewed love of Jesus Christ.